You're listening to Second on the Mount, a podcast of sermons from Second Presbyterian Church, located on Mountain Avenue in Roanoke, Virginia. We are glad you found us. My name is Elizabeth Link, and I'm the executive pastor. Each week, we climb into the pulpit with a bit of fear and trembling. We hope and pray that what we have to say is true to God's will for the church and may encourage and challenge you on your journey of discipleship. Please rate and review if you enjoy. May the Spirit have some word for you in what we have to share. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The story of the Good Samaritan is one of the more well-known stories of Jesus. There are ministries and nonprofits, hospitals and hospices like Good Samaritan Hospice here in our own valley, all named after this story. Many countries even have Good Samaritan laws to provide legal protections for those who act to help others. The Good Samaritan has become the ultimate example of what it means to go beyond typical expectations in caring for others. In taking a closer look at our passage today, I hope we might receive a renewed glimpse of God's kingdom in this ancient story. Our scripture passage comes from the New Testament Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, and may be found on page 835 of your pew Bible if you would like to follow along. Jesus has just been approached by a man with a question. Jesus responds with a question of his own and then a story, a parable. Let's listen to these words for the church today from Luke 10, beginning with verse 25. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I'll repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? 
the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Friends, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The situation Jesus describes is both ancient and contemporary. In the ancient tradition of Buddhism, we read of the young Prince Siddhartha, the future Buddha, taking outings. Outside his palace, he sees the human condition of old age, sickness, and death. One day, he sees an aged man as bent as a roof gable, decrepit, leaning on a staff, tottering as he walked, afflicted, and long past his prime. On the next outing, he sees a sick man suffering and ill, falling and weltering in his own water. The sights grip him. Mentally, he could not get past them. He could not pass by. Twenty-five centuries after the Buddha, I see similar sights around me. A man panhandling at the corner of Franklin and Brandon. A woman suffering from mental illness, interrupting a conversation to ask for help with her broken phone. Sadly, it's not hard to make an endless litany of passing by on the other side. A lawyer asks a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The question assumes some to-do list, recite a prayer, offer a sacrifice, drop some peanut butter off for the PCC, put a 20 in the collection plate. If this man's efficient, he can inherit eternal life by lunch. But this question is far greater than the man imagines. In typical Jewish fashion, Jesus answers his question with another question. What is written in the law? What do you read there? The lawyer answers with two verses of the Torah, known to all practicing Jews then and now. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength, from Deuteronomy 6.5, and love your neighbor as yourself, from Leviticus 19. It's a solid answer. It's the right answer. But he's asked the wrong question. So Jesus changes it for him. The lawyer asked about eternal life. Jesus reframes what is at stake by extorting, do this and you will live. The imperative, do, focuses not on a single action, but on an ongoing relationship. Do this and live. Now. The point is to live now and not be focused on eternal life. Wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asks another question. Who is my neighbor? It's not a bad question. One needs to know who are neighbors and who are not. But in the context of love, neighbor has to extend beyond the people in one's own group. Jesus knew what the man meant by this question. To ask, who is my neighbor, is a polite way of asking, who is not my neighbor? Who does not deserve my love? Whose food or shelter can I ignore? Whom can I hate? In short, the answer Jesus gives to this question is no one. 
The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is an 18-mile rocky path that descended from the height of about 2,500 feet above sea level to Jericho's around 825 feet below sea level. That's about the distance of downtown Roanoke to McAfee Knob, if McAfee Knob were about 1,000 feet taller. Everyone in Jesus' day would have understood how dangerous that downhill stretch of road would be. A man was traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. The travelers stripped, beaten, and left half dead in the ditch. He's robbed not only of his possessions, but also of his dignity, his health, and almost his life. Two men pass him by. Jesus never tells us why. It's interesting, people have inferred lots of things about it, but Jesus never says. Perhaps the priest and the Levite were in a hurry to get somewhere else. Two Princeton psychology professors ran an experiment on Princeton seminary students against their knowledge, setting up a good Samaritan scenario to test the seminarian's helping behavior. Now you would think seminary students would be a little more willing to intervene when seeing someone in need. But the overall conclusion of the study found that people in a hurry were far less likely to exhibit any helping behavior, whether they were seminary students or not. If you're in a hurry to get someplace else, you're much more likely to pass on by. The study concluded, ethics become a luxury as speed of our daily lives continue. So maybe these two men were in a hurry. Or perhaps the priest and the Levite didn't feel safe stopping to help the injured man. As Martin Luther King Jr. preached, I'm going to tell you what I imagine here. It's possible these men were afraid, he preached. And so the first question that the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by, and as he reversed the question, he asks, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? King went on, if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? King then traveled to Memphis, and it was there he was assassinated. There are bandits on the road. So perhaps the priest and the Levite didn't feel safe stopping to help the man. But then along comes the Samaritan. Whatever gave the priest and the Levite pause did not appear to be a factor for him. Where the other two men distanced themselves from the victim in the ditch, the Samaritan literally went to him and showed him compassion. By the time Jesus told this story in first century Palestine, the enmity between the Jews and Samaritans was ancient, entrenched, and bitter. Both Samaritans and Jews claimed to be the true descendants of Abraham. Samaritans had evolved in the northern kingdom as a result of Assyrian exile and return. They read only from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and they worshiped God in a place called Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans looked down on the Jews from the southern kingdom like Jesus, the lawyer, the priest, and the Levite, because they read additional books, like the prophets and writings, what make up what we now call the Old Testament, and because they worship God in a place called Jerusalem. To put this in more contemporary language, the Samaritan was the other, the alien, the heretic, the object of fear, condescension, disgust, and judgment. Consider 
who is the last person on earth you would want to deem the good guy? The last person you'd ever want to ask for a favor, much less owe your life. Whom do you secretly hope to convert, fix, change, or save, but never ever need? In 2016, Joe Widenecht was protesting a march at the University of Texas. This is just after the presidential election and tensions were high. Joe was sporting his Make America Great Again hat and a sign that read proud to be deplorable when he became surrounded by anti-Trump protesters. A Muslim student, Amina Amdeen, saw someone snatch Joe's hat and people start yelling and getting more and more aggressive with him. Amina says something snapped inside of her because she knew what it was like to be picked on. Amina rushed toward Joe, came to his aid, and the crowd was disbanded by this small Muslim woman. Later in an interview, Joe said that moment changed him. He never expected someone like Amina to step in and offer him aid. The story Jesus shares is a parable. And as you may have heard me say before, the word parable comes from two Greek words. Para, as in parallel, two things that are side by side, and balo, which means to throw. So it means to cast two things side by side, to cast the story in the text with the story in our own lives, the story Jesus told with the story in our own lives. And if Jesus were to share a similar story for us today, perhaps it might go something a little more like this. A progressive Democrat is robbed and a far right-wing Republican saves her life. A racist white cop is robbed, and an African-American teenager saves his life. A transgender woman is robbed, and an anti-LGBTQ activist saves her life. An outspoken atheist is robbed, and a Bible-thumping fundamentalist saves his life. A Border Patrol agent is robbed, and an undocumented immigrant saves his life. A physician from Planned Parenthood is robbed, and an anti-abortion lobbyist saves her life. I don't mean to trivialize the real and serious differences that divide us. Those differences, political, religious, racial, ideological, today those differences are even costing some people their lives. But I'm trying to make the point that enmity between Jews and Samaritans in Jesus' day was not theoretical, but embodied and real. As real as our differences are today, each was fully convinced that the other was wrong. So when Jesus deems that the Samaritan was good, he stunned his Jewish listeners. He was asking them to dream of a different kind of kingdom. He was calling them to put aside the history and prejudices they knew. He was inviting them to consider the possibility that the person might be more than their political, social, racial, or economic identities. The man in the ditch, the one fallen upon by robbers, is the only character in the story not defined by his profession or his class or his religious beliefs. He has no identity other than his need. Perhaps we ought to place ourselves in his shoes broken, and grateful 
that anyone would show us mercy before we can fully feel the unbounded compassion of the Samaritan man. All tribalism falls away on the broken road. All divisions of us and them will disappear out of necessity. When you're lying helpless, what matters is not whose help you would prefer. What matters most is whether anyone will stop to show you mercy. If it hasn't happened yet, it will. In a hospital room, at a graveside, when a marriage fails, when the bottom falls out, when the storm, the betrayal, the war, the injury, or the diagnosis comes. Somehow, somewhere, it will happen. And when it does, it won't be our politics or even our theology that saves us. All that will matter is how quickly you reach for the hand you hoped you'd never touch. How readily you'll agree to receive help from the other you fear. Who is my neighbor? The lawyer asks. Your neighbor is the one who scandalizes you with compassion. Your neighbor is the one who shocks you with a fresh face of God. Your neighbor is the one who mercifully steps over the line that separates us from them and teaches you the real meaning of good. God comes to us where we least expect God to be because that's the way God always comes to us. God comes to us in unlikely people and in likely times because God comes for us all. What shall we do to inherit eternal life? Go, Jesus says, and do this. Do likewise. Do this. Draw close. Show mercy. Extend kindness. And see yourself in the victim. Recognize the humanity of the one you hate the most. Do this, Jesus says, and you will truly live. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.